In the evenings, we've been looking at prayer, and I think the title of the series has been Soul Searching Prayer. Some of the best soul searching prayers that you get in the Bible are found in the book of Psalms. And what makes the book of Psalms so great is they often reflect what we want to say to God, but we just don't know how to say it. Um, and this is a, a, a very profound prayer from a man ridden with guilt. Let's read it. Psalm 51. To the choir master, Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. Well, as is often the case with the Psalms, uh, the titles of the Psalms are immensely important. I always get really annoyed when people read from the Psalms and they don't read the title because the title shapes so much of the context of the Psalm and why it was written. And this Psalm is, is, is especially true of Psalm 51 because there in the title we see the backstory to um, this Psalm. And it's a story that's told in full in the book of Second Samuel. Psalm 51, it was written by Israel's great king, the, the, the hero of the Old Testament in many regards, King David. He is, we are told, a man after God's own heart. He is a man who loves God and a man who uh, follows God in many ways, was a great example uh, to all the kings that followed him. Now, David had a, a group of soldiers that were fiercely loyal to him. It's pretty cool. They were called his mighty men, and it was kind of like a, an ancient Palestinian equivalent of the Expendables, if you've ever seen that film. Um, and so he had these kind of really hard guys that were really loyal to him. They loved him, and they did lots for him. 
And one of those men was a man called Uriah. Now, there was a a time where Uriah and uh, the mighty men, as it were, were out fighting for David. Uh, And David was back at home in the palace in Jerusalem. He goes for a walk out onto the roof. And he looks across, and across the way he sees a woman who's bathing. uh, And it turns out to be a woman called Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. And David is basically sees her and decides that he wants to sleep with her. And because he is king, that is what happened. He, he made that happen. And the result of that affair that he had um, with Bathsheba was that she became pregnant. And then what follows when you read the story in Second Samuel is this downward spiral of lies and deceit as David tries to frantically cover his tracks with Uriah. And eventually what he decides to do after trying to deceive Uriah is he puts him on the front line of the battle to make sure that he will be killed. He essentially orders Uriah's death. And then he marries Bathsheba to make it look as if her pregnancy was legitimate. It's an absolutely, it's one of the worst stories in the Bible. It's a horrendous tale. And David is completely blinded by how horrible an act this is that he has done. He's completely blinded by how horrendous it actually is until one day Nathan, the prophet, comes to David and he tells him a story. And he tells him the story of a man who was wealthy, who had lots of sheep and cattle, who lived next to a poor man who had only one little lamb. And Nathan says that that this poor man loved this lamb as if it was his own child. And then a traveler comes into town And he comes to the rich man's house, and the rich man decides that rather than using one of his own sheep or his own cattle to kill and feed this traveler, he kills the poor man and steals his lamb and gives it to the traveler. And we read this in 2 Samuel, that when David heard this story, he arose in wrath and anger. And he says to Nathan, find me this man, for he must be put to death. And then Nathan delivers a a devastating blow to King David. He says, you, O king, you are that man. And David, we are told, broke down and he wept bitterly. And he fell into a, a pit of overwhelming guilt and despair at these horrendous acts that he had done, that he had suddenly been confronted with. And he took pen to paper or um, whatever the ancient equivalent of that would have been, and he wrote these words that we have just read. He wrote this psalm, Psalm 51, after being in that pit of guilt. So my aim this evening then is to look at the question, how do we pray our guilt? How do we pray our guilt? Is there a way to to get out of that pit of guilt and yet not diminish the severity of, of some of the stuff that we do? How can we confront the wrong that we have done in an honest way, yet in a way that doesn't lead us to to selfish introspection and despair? See, I doubt, maybe, there might be some similarities with with some of you here with what David has done. I doubt it. There might not be. But some of you will have felt sickened by guilt. And can I say that really, if you are a Christian, you should have felt something like this. I I don't know, when you read through Psalm 51, there's something that resonates with what David is saying, even if you've not done the horrendous acts that David has done. 
There's something in there that should resonate with your heart. Some of you will have felt guilty. Some of you will have felt, maybe even tonight, so guilty that you wonder if God could ever love you, if God could ever forgive you, because you keep doing the same thing again and again, or because of something horrendous that you have done in the past. And this psalm offers hope that is real and that is true for you. But I'm also aware that there are probably some of you here who maybe have no guilt at all in life, when in reality you should. You should. This psalm will, I hope, expose and open your eyes to see yourself. And in both these cases, I want us all to, to be led to where this psalm leads us, which is to the overwhelming mercy and love of God, not to ourselves, but to him. So, how do we do it? How does David pray his guilt? How do we pray our guilt when we are confronted with our sin? Two points there. I've got them on your service sheet. Firstly, come to God with a broken heart that understands sin. And secondly, trust that God will give you a pure heart cleansed from sin. Come to God with a broken heart that understands sin. And secondly, trust that God will give you a pure heart cleansed from sin. We need both of these things. So if you've ever felt, if you've ever felt guilt, if you've ever felt the weight of shame, one of the hardest things to do is to pray about it. There's a sense of shame as a Christian that comes when you know that you've done something wrong, you know that God has seen it, and you're thinking, how do I speak to God about this? Because I'm so broken, I'm so ashamed of what I have done, of what I have said, of what I have thought. How do I pray? Well, David gives us a really good starting point. He begins by holding on to the only thing that he can hold on to in these situations. God's mercy, God's unfailing love, and God's compassion. What can I bring? David doesn't start this prayer. He doesn't start by saying, oh God, I have been a great king. I have served you faithfully for so long. David can't appeal to anything that he has done in the past. So he appeals to the only thing that can help him. And it's the unfailing love, the compassion and the mercy of God, because that is all he has. And he comes bringing it to God, saying, look at verse 2, he, he, he feels unclean, he feels dirty, he feels like he's got a stain in his life, the stain of sin that he cannot remove. I can't get rid of it. Wipe it thoroughly from me. Wash me thoroughly. And when you're conscious of your sin, that is what it feels like. When, when you're aware that what you have done is wrong and that it offends God, it feels like it feels like dirt on your soul. And David wants God to remove it. But then he does something really interesting in verses 3 to 5. See, when David comes and he confesses this, uh, 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 he appeals to God's mercy. He does something in verse 3 to 5, which is absolutely fascinating. He does something which kind of intensifies the severity of what he has done. Something which intensifies his guilt. He doesn't come to God, notice. Remember what this man has done. This is a horrible thing. He doesn't come to God to talk about his adultery. He doesn't come to God to talk about murder. He doesn't come to God to talk about his lies, his betrayal, or the fact that he has let down the entire nation of God. He doesn't attribute his actions to his sexual lust which is probably some, what somebody like Sigmund Freud would say uh, all our problems are rooted in. He, he doesn't do that because David has got a much better understanding 
of the human condition than someone like Freud. There's something underneath all that sin that he did, something that is horrendous, that was just the, the, the murder and the lies and the deceit. They're symptomatic of a deeper-rooted problem. Verse 4, David says this to God, against you, God, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, what's what's David saying here? Against you, God, against you, you only have I sinned. Well, what what about Bathsheba? What about the baby that is in her womb? What about Uriah? Think about Uriah's Uriah's father, as he had to witness this, what this man did to his son, whom he was loyal to. Think about Bathsheba's family. Think about, again, the entire nation of Israel. This is meant to be God's chosen king. In fact, when you look at this story, it's really hard to think of anyone that David hasn't sinned against. And here he comes in this psalm, and he says this to God, against you, it's emphatic in the Hebrew, Against you, God, you only have I sinned. You, you're the one that I've hurt. It's not that David hasn't sinned against these people. He has. And in a sense, he needs forgiveness from them as well. But what David is doing here, he's understanding something that's so key, that sin and wrongdoing and evil, it is not fundamentally just the breaking of a moral law, but it's the rejection of the moral lawgiver. Sin, by its definition, is first and foremost an assault against God. It's sin, sin it's, not, it's not about being bad. It's not just about being naughty. It's when we say, either subconsciously or consciously, God, I am not going to live your way in life. I'm going to live my way. The root of David's problem was not lust. But the fact that the moment that he decided to do these horrible things, he put himself in God's place. He knows what God said about adultery. He knows how God wants him to live. But at the moment he chose to do those things, in his heart he said, God, you're not in charge. I am. And I'm not going to live your way. And I'm not going to obey your moral laws. I'm going to live my own way. I want this for myself. That is why God is the most hurt and the most offended party when any of us sin, because all sin is fundamentally, first and foremost, an assault against God. When we sin, we seek to dethrone him and we decide what is right in our lives. And we may read this psalm, and we may read this one and think, well, I have not done what David has done. I have not done these things. Maybe not. But you have the same heart as David, and therefore, let me tell you, you are capable of doing the same thing. David had all the resources. He was king. He could do whatever he wanted. Oh my, what if you saw here today, on the screens behind me, everything you had thought and said and done the past month, and we could all look at it and see it. Would you be embarrassed because I know that I would. In fact, I don't even think I could speak to you because I don't even think you'd want to hear what I have to say if you really knew what my heart was like. 
See, David gets right underneath this all to the rotten core of humanity. This was not a freak accident. He wasn't just in the wrong place at the wrong time. He tells us here, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. He's saying, I was born with this in my heart, this sin. The cancer of sin is something that we are all infected with. And if you were to to study human nature, you'd see that. You know, there was... um, there's a great story of the author G.K. Chesterton um, in which he, you may have heard this story, in which he responded to an article in the Times which was entitled, What is Wrong with the World? And various different philosophers and ethicists would write in as to what they think was wrong with the world. Because, let, well, let's be honest, the world is broken. That's maybe something we can all agree on. There is something wrong with the world. And G.K. Chesterton wrote the shortest article um, to the newspaper. It just said this, in response to what is wrong with the world. Dear sirs, I am G.K. Chesterton. And that is a man who understands. That's a man who understands what David is saying here. That the brokenness that we see in society, the brokenness that, that is caused by sin and evil, is not a thing that's out there. It's not something that's just isolated to to fundamentalist terrorists, the brokenness that we see in the world is ultimately inside all of us. We were brought forth in sin and iniquity. Uh, I've quoted this before uh, at Chalmers, but um, I thought it was just excellent. Um, It's from William Golden, uh, who wrote Lord of the Flies. And he wrote that um, novel Basically, that's a great novel that's an insight into human nature. It's about these school kids who all crash land on an island uh, and they basically turn into savages. And this is why William Golden says he wrote Lord of the Flies. He says this, Before the Second World War, I believed in the perfectibility of social man, that correct structure of society would produce goodwill, and that therefore you could remove all social ills by a reorganization of society. After the war, I did not believe it because I was unable to. There were things done during that period from which I still have to avert my mind, lest I should be physically sick. They were done not by the headhunters of New Guinea or by some primitive tribe in the Amazon. They were done skillfully and coldly by educated men and doctors and lawyers, by men with a tradition of civilization behind them, to beings of their own kind. I do not want to elaborate on this, writes Golden. I would like to pass on, but I must say that anyone who moved through those years without understanding that man produces evil as a bee produces honey must have been blind or wrong in the head. Now, Golden's saying there that he used to think, well, we are all striving towards something perfect and we can create a perfect society. After the war, that whole notion was ridiculous because he saw good educated men do horrendous things and he realized something fundamental about human nature and that is that we all produce evil like a bee produces honey. There's something broken inside of us. And when David prays his guilt to God, he's not just talking about the symptoms of his sin. He's praying what lies right at the core, right underneath all those horrible things that he has done. So what do you do when you confront that, when you realize that you have done this against God? This is what hurts David, because he loves God, and he doesn't want to offend God, and he doesn't want to do stuff that hurts God. And as a Christian, you can resonate with that. When you sin, you don't want to hurt God. 
Maybe some of us just need to have our eyes open. And I pray that this psalm, like Nathan's word, will open our eyes. Maybe we've done stuff that's wrong against others that we need to tell them. But first and foremost, what we do with that, with the wrong that we have done, we bring it to God. Pray your guilt. See, there's this, it's interesting. There's two responses I think you can have to to guilt. Um, One that's biblical and one that's not. Remorse or repentance. Two very different things. Remorse would be, you know, remorse is just another form of self-pity. It's not self-awareness. It's doing, it's doing the very thing that was the root cause of your sin. It's looking to yourself. Remorse is feeling bad about yourself. Perhaps you've been found out. Perhaps you've been caught. Remorse is about looking inwards, but repentance is different. Repentance is about looking outwards to God. David prays, yes, my sin is before me. It's so bad. It's so much worse than I've ever realized. I've hurt you so much, God. I have no justification for what I've done. It is hideous, but please show me mercy. Why? Because of your steadfast love. That word in in Hebrew is the word chesed, which is a very important word in the Hebrew Bible. And it doesn't mean love like a feeling. It means God's promised covenantal love. It's the love that God says that even though you do wrong, I promise I will love you. And that's what we do as Christians. Maybe that's what you need to do just after the service tonight. Just go home and pray. Lord, show me what I've done against you. Please forgive me. I really wish that maybe we as as a church and me especially as an individual would be more broken by how horrible sin is. It's what crucified Christ. The psalm doesn't end there though. See, David, David is bold in what he says in this psalm because he doesn't just want forgiveness. David wants something more than just forgiveness from God. He wants God to completely change him. That's the second point. Trust that God will give you a pure heart cleansed from sin. Verse six, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. See, David doesn't just, he doesn't just only confess what he has done. He doesn't just confess to God how bad his heart really is, but he does something here that highlights how utterly scandalous he believes the mercy of God to be. He says, God, don't just forgive me of that wrongdoing, but I want you to take all the sin, not just that, but all the sin that I've ever done in my life, and I want you to blot it out completely and remove it. And again, I think it's scandalous, but as a Christian, you read that psalm and you can resonate with that. I wish there was a button I could press that would make me stop sinning. Hate sin, not hate yourself. Remorse hates yourself. Repentance hates your sin. And don't you just hate it and wish you could stop. Wish we could be clean. I want to enjoy you more, David says. See how this is all about, it's not about breaking a law. It's about offending a person. It's about hurting God. That's what he says in verse 12. He's like, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I want to know the joy of being a forgiven sinner. 
so I don't rebel against you. And why do I call this mercy scandalous? Well, because it is. Because you know that God, that God just forgave David. Does anyone have a Does anyone have a problem with that? God just forgave David for that. After all that he did, God answered these pleas. He blotted out his sin to make him new. See how scandalous that is. But do you know that that is what he offers you despite your sin? Sinning against God has the most severe consequences and we've seen that all sin is ultimately against God. But David knew that God was merciful. David knew that God had promised to love him. David knew that there was some way that God could destroy the the consequence of sin in his life without destroying him. And he didn't know how, but he just trusted he would. But today, as those who live in the time after Jesus, we do know. See, the Bible, the Bible is a weird book. It's a strange book to read, not just in terms of you know, its content and style in some places, but it's really unlike anything else. Most, most religious texts, if you're trying to paint, talk about someone that is a good example, they would often paint them in a kind of very saintly manner, almost untouchable. Here we've got the great King David, and look at how he is talked about here. He's a messed up, messed up person the man after God's own heart. In fact, everyone in this book, if you read it, they're all messed up, apart from one guy. You see, Jesus stands in stark contrast to every other human being, the perfect man, that's who he was, because he was also God. And he came into human history, why he came to answer this prayer that David has, not just for him, but for us all. He came to pay the punishment of David's sin, for all our sin. And that's what he did on the cross. God does not just forgive. He doesn't just wave his hand and say forgiveness. Forgiveness is costly. And if you've ever, if you've ever forgiven someone, you know that. In fact, the more they've hurt you, the harder it is to forgive. And it is costly to forgive someone. Well, for God to forgive David, to forgive us, it cost him the life of his son, whom he had loved for all eternity. And for Jesus to make that forgiveness possible, he had to bear the wrath that we deserve. And that's what he does on the cross. The wrath for David's rebellion, the wrath for our rebellion goes on Jesus Christ because it's at that moment, this is how Psalm 51 makes sense. Jesus was cast from God's presence so that we would never have to be. Jesus was immersed in the filth of our sin so that we could be clean. He was crushed by God's wrath so we could rejoice in his salvation. And he did that because that is the only way that God can destroy the sin in our lives without destroying us. Praise Christ that his love is so scandalous and his mercy is so far-reaching. Otherwise, there'd be no hope for any of us. So, so do what David does. This is what the Psalm's saying. Come with, with your guilt acknowledging that you're far worse than you ever realize and bring it to God. But come in faith, trusting that Christ has said about all your sin, I've paid the price for that, and acknowledging that you're, you're far more loved than you could ever, ever possibly imagine. This is not about, this is what Christianity is about. It's not about being good and moral. I quoted this last week, I think it was, but it was C.S. Lewis who said that Jesus hasn't come to make nice people. He's come to make 
new people. And so if you trust Jesus, you are different. You are different to what you were before you trusted him. You are forgiven. And actually the Bible says that that you've got what David asked for, a new heart, cleansed from sin. What does that mean? It means you have God's Holy Spirit indwelling you. You have all that you need to fight sin, but you will fail time and time again, and you will hate sin because it offends God. So use this psalm to, to pray that repentance and keep you ever leaning on God's mercy. I just close by saying this, that when you get that, <laughs> when you get that you're simultaneously sinful and forgiven. That changes everything. That changes everything. See, religion is all about doing good to please God. This is not religion. This is a group of messed up people who don't lean on their own good works, but who lean purely on God's mercy. And that produces something that is radical and real. Look at what David says in these closing verses. How does being a forgiven sinner, how does it change you? Firstly, it creates evangelistic zeal. Verse 13. I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David says that when you forgive me, I want to go out and I want to tell others so that they can be forgiven and have the joy of salvation. Secondly, it creates a joyful praise to God in verses 14 to 15. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Jonathan Edwards, who called repentance uh, a sweet sorrow, and that you're broken by it, but it also produces the assurance of salvation, which produces songs of joy. Thirdly, what does this do? It creates genuine worship in verses 16 to 17. David writes, God, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, that's how they worshipped before Christ. As the people of God, they brought sacrifices. We don't bring sacrifices because Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice. But what he's saying here is he's saying, God, you don't care about mindless religious devotion. God doesn't care if you're just coming to church, if you're just reading the Bible, if you're just spending time with his people. He wants you. He wants your heart. A broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. That's what God delights in. That's the worship that God finds acceptable. And fourthly and finally, it builds up the church. Closing verses in 18 to 19, David switches from his own personal experience to talk about Zion, the people of God. And he prays that they would be built up together, showing that this psalm was not just sung by him, but everyone would sing this. So use this psalm this evening to bring your guilt to Jesus. Jesus' message to all was this, repent and believe, repent of your sin and believe that he has dealt with it. And only then will you marvel at such love. And only then can you have an authentic, real relationship with God. And only then will you really, really be truly free. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this wonderful psalm um, born out of circumstance which is horrible and horrendous as your servant David did the most wicked things and yet you forgave him. You answered that plea and you forgave him.
And Father, we are no better in some regard, even if we haven't done what he has done. We still rebel against you, we still offend you, and we still hurt you. So we ask you this evening to forgive us. We ask you to blot out all our iniquities. We ask you to cleanse us from all sin. And that's a bold request. And yet we know the answer already. The answer is always yes in Christ. And we praise you for that. Father, please make us more broken by our sin. Help us to see what it did to your son, what it cost you to forgive us. But help us also to trust in your unfailing love and your compassion, to trust that you have given us a new heart, that you are there helping us fight against sin, and to trust that one day you will take us back home with you, free from all iniquity. Father, help us to pray our guilt, to be ever leaning on your mercy so we can be changed, to be people that have that authentic relationship with you and that seek to make you known to others. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.